0: All right, man, my top 10 favorite films of 2018. Uh, If you want to skip the introduction and the rules, you can go ahead and look at the timestamps posted below, whether you're listening on YouTube or Spotify. I'm going to go over the introduction briefly in case this is anyone's first time listening to one of these list videos that I've made. Uh, Just going over what qualifies for the films and um, what will go into the rankings, man. So... Uh, What this is is that every four months I randomize a year from 1930 to the previous year, which this being November 2022, uh, it'll go up to 2021, and then next year it'll go to 2022. And uh, that randomized year, I give myself four months to watch as much as I can from that year, primarily hitting a lot of the big heavy hitters, uh, a lot of the winners of that year at the Oscars, at the Palm d'Or, as well as a handful of whatever I can just get my hands on, you know. And then after those four months, I just do a top 10 favorite of that year, along with an overall ranking at the end of the list. Um, The previous series have included 1998, 1958, and 1956, so the next Top 10 video will come in March of 2023. Um, the film for a film to qualify it had to have been seen publicly outside of a festival that year so it doesn't matter if it played in one theater in Rio de Janeiro or it played in 2,000 theaters across the United States it had to have been seen publicly outside of a festival there are many films that premiere at festivals that don't get releases until uh, the next year and it doesn't have to be a theatrically uh, released film either as long as it was released whether it be on a streaming service or theatrically or straight to video it doesn't matter as long as anyone could see it in that year to qualify. Uh, it seems like every list there's a couple films that keep popping up that don't that do not qualify. Uh, the one film that I kept seeing pop up on lists was You Were Never Really Here, which is listed as 2018, but it actually wasn't released theatrically until 2019, so it will not qualify. As well as feature films only, and for it to be a feature film it has to be at least an hour is kind of where I've, I've had it, so at uh, on the last top 10, uh, The Red Balloon was one that would have made my top 10 of 1956, but that is a half hour short film, so it will not qualify for the sake of this solely being a feature film. Um, but uh, when I say feature film, that, that's what I mean about now, where it can even be like a TV movie if, if, if so need be, which I haven't had that issue yet. Um, but that's all that really matters here. And then at the end of the, like I said, at the end of the list, going to go through uh, all just, just quick rankings of all the films. Um, and another important thing to realize is that this is not a definitive list. I'm aware that I will see films later on that would have made a list of a video of a vi- made a video of a list that I already I already did. So, I, like I said, I'm gonna I'm sure down the line I'm gonna see another film from 1998 that I would have put in my top 10. This is by no means meant to be a comprehensive seeing every single thing from that year. Um, this is just something fun to uh, watch and rewatch a lot of titles that uh, I, I wanted to get to. Um, this is just for fun this is by no means a, a, a uh, an objective ranking I've, I've said before I don't believe in objectivity in art this is solely just um, subjective what I feel are uh, my favorite films because ultimately you really can't uh, you can't uh, uh, put art like this side by side. I mean, I look at my top 10 right here and I have uh, very many different kinds of films here that uh, all have their strengths above one another in their own way. Uh, The entire list as well. There are critically acclaimed films that uh, might be a bit lower and there are not as critically acclaimed films that be a bit higher. It's all subjective, it's all for fun. I wouldn't take it too seriously. This is just a way to uh, turn people on to some films they may not be aware about or uh, films you were familiar with that you hadn't seen yet or just for a fun list man this is all for fun and I wouldn't take it too seriously man but that's all I gotta say so without further ado man let's just get right into it with number 10. At number 10 is a documentary there are plenty of war documentaries but I've never seen one truly like this man from Peter Jackson this is they shall not grow old.
1: At any given moment you can expect to be shelled We you got very little protection against that. And You'd hear a mild pop as the gun fired five miles away and in the five or six seconds, it took him to come. You can pass through quite a number of psychological changes. I can't remember anything more nerve-wracking than the continuous shelling without stop day and night. Well, we were always told that you never heard the shell that hit you because most of them traveled faster than sound. You could literally feel your heart pounding against the ground. The emotional strain was absolutely terrific. Although a
0: shell might burst 50 yards away, you might find a fragment of jagged iron nearly red-hot weighing half a pound arriving in your trench. So this was a second-time watch for me. I had originally seen this film theatrically back in either 2018 or... You know what? It was actually at the end of 2018 because I remember this was a Fathom Events um, film that had done so well they actually gave it a full theatrical run, at least for the most part. I don't know if this was a totally wide release, but I noticed that my uh, cinema that had shown it had been given a full week-long slot for it, multiple show times a day, because when I saw this film, man, I should also mention I saw this in 3D, I mean, the audience, man, it was damn near sold out. It was a very, uh, it was just really great to watch it with an audience, man, because seeing this film theatrically, I think if you had the opportunity to, uh, it was truly remarkable, man, because to, to watch the trailer was one thing, but to see this film when it makes that turn, I mean, geez, Louise, man! It truly makes the hairs on your arm stand. It's the power of visual art, man. Uh, what this film is is you have Peter Jackson, who originally was given a task of. Um, uh, now, I'm going to get some of this information incorrect, so I do apologize. But essentially, he was given a bunch of archival footage from, I think, a World War One museum. That uh, uh, they were they asked him to do something with the footage, and so what he did is that he painstakingly went through and not only um, put uh, uh recolor you know, colorize the footage which we've seen before but he went just the next 10 steps and you know he uh, he fixed the frame rate on this so you know you watch a lot of old film footage and everything looks fast you know that's just that's how films were shot back then but he fixed the frame rate so it looks as good as can be Um, he added sound at certain times or he added sound to um, because the film is primarily narrated, um, but he, uh, you know, the one shame about this is that. Uh, so I had I rewatched the streaming man, and and when I saw this film theatrically, there was about a thirty minute uh, documentary afterwards about how they actually went about to make the film, and, and how they were able to reconstruct the footage, and as well as getting in, um, they looked up the guns that were used, and they, they they found those guns and shot them off, and and they had uh, mouth translators, you know, guys who can like or lip lip readers, and they found. A what they were saying because there was even one part of this film man where I think there was one piece of footage where they didn't for a while they didn't know what this one person was saying and they eventually got this translator to crack the code and it's just an exhaustive man it's, it's going beyond the realm of just simply uh you know colorizing it which would have been phenomenal as is but you look at a guy like Peter Jackson and, and regardless of what you think about some of his films you know I love some of his films and I don't love some others um you can see all the way from bad taste to even something like his 2005 King Kong which admittedly I wasn't a fan of, but you look at the, um, you know, he goes through the effort to, uh, redo the, uh, lost spider scene, man, for, uh, the, um, the Warner Brothers re-released Blu-ray of the original King Kong because I think he did it around that time, and he's a guy who is who truly loves filmmaking, man, and and you know I know he got kind of um, uh, known for all the Lord of the Rings films, and then you know those are fine films and all, but you look at even something recently like he's uh, I didn't even watch it, but I you know all the people were talking about the Beatles Get Back and restoring all that footage and stuff. He's a guy who just truly loves filmmaking and gave us such just such an incredible film here. Uh, the film, I mean, when the way you watch it, man, it's 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 incredible because you have that jump about 30 minutes in or so uh, when the film does that pan into the footage and it, it looks and it's uh, it, it, the the frame rate is fixed it, there's color there I mean it is just as beautiful as can be and on that would have been fine as is but the way the film goes along is that you have these different um, you know we have different narrators going through talking about it's not a, it's not quite as grim as you would expect it to be we all know the horrors of war and the film definitely doesn't shine away from that you know there is a lot of dead bodies in the film especially colorized it shows truly the brutality of uh wartime and just they they uh uh, show just these young men who just got brutalized man it's just just senseless mean senselessly man it's war man it's war is just senseless but they show here and um under the best possible conditions with a lot of these soldiers who a lot of them came back and a lot of them didn't but the ones who went there you know telling their stories telling about the ups and the downs and how some would do it again others weren't you know it's a very it's not one way or another it's not a propaganda film and it's not an anti-war film it's just the footage spoke uh uh um the footage uh, uh, narrated by those who were involved with it, uh, and at the end of the film, it has uh, uh, a remembrance of Peter Jackson's grandfather who uh, who um, fought in World War One. I. I mean, it's pretty incredible, man. You watch the film, and you know, as you're going along, you forget that you're watching footage that at this point is a hundred years old. I mean, practically a hundred years old. I don't know when exactly World War One started. I think 1914, to my knowledge. I might be wrong about that, but essentially, you're watching footage from the 1910s, and you forget all about it. It's 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 just crazy. You watch it. And, how much has changed and how much hasn't, and uh, as well as in the documentary that I mentioned after the thirty minute documentary, they even revisit uh, some of the the locations that were used uh, uh, during World War One, and they show like one of the one of the trench areas and how it is now. It's like it's in like a giant field and stuff. It's it's incredible, man, and it's important that you know we we look at this footage and we can look at what has changed and what hasn't changed, man. I mean, it's still senseless wars, man. It's it's not a political film. It's just showing how it was. And and the brutality of it, man. It, it, and you know what? The great thing as well, man, is that it doesn't overstay its welcome, man. It's a it's a brisk hour forty, man, and it flies by. There's because you have a, a prologue and epilogue of this black and white footage of boys going to war and the boys coming home, as well as all the color footage as well. And it just seals itself up so nice. When this was over, I was just astonished. I was like, well, I've been watching this for an hour and a half. I mean, an hour forty minutes, man. It's a film where. It's uh, it's just it's one of these films you wish you could show everybody because it's it's just incredible the amount of hard work and effort that went into this man and on they would have been good enough you know as a, as a you know as a maybe PBS documentary or whatever but uh but seeing this theatrically was something else and I'm not a 3D guy at all and I in fact I really can't stand uh, seeing films in 3D but this was one of the few that I would say if I had the opportunity to see in 3D again uh, I definitely wouldn't because 3D still makes me nauseated but I think a lot of people would, would uh, benefit from seeing this in 3D because it actually, it works out really well, man. It actually complements a lot of the footage in ways and a lot, as well as some great shots in the film, man. I mean, there are some where these are not staged. These are just guys with cameras, but there's a couple times where you just see the beautiful background of the sky and just line like rows of men just coming towards the camera and off to the side. It's truly amazing, man. It feels very cinematic at times, but you never, you know, you never forget that what you're watching, man, is is real and it's, ex- ex- ugly and it's horrible, but it's also shows the light in, uh, in a horrible situation like this, and it's not a downbeat film, I definitely don't want to give that impression, but it's the light, whatever light there could be at the end of the tunnel, that is a, a senseless war like this, man. Uh, an incredible film, man, truly one that I remember got a lot of talk when it came out, but has been kind of uh, less talked about since, and especially with Peter Jackson uh, being such a, a big filmmaker who is known to make these kind of big spectacles, these really uh, big, epic, kind of long films, you can Seeing a film like this after I had pretty much lost all interest after those uh, Hobbit films, um, and I know about the production on those films, I'm not saying that's his or anything like that but I'm just saying more so I, I he, he's a guy who... Um uh, just when he when he puts out something like this, or from what I hear, the, the Beatles get back. You really, you really see how much of a true artist this guy is, and how he really hasn't lost it. He's just gone different ways, man. So uh, this one I watched, I rewatched it on HBO Max. So if you're interested, check it out there. Incredible film. At number ten, it is They Shall Not Grow Old. All right, man. At number nine is a film that, on a rewatch, my opinion had significantly gone up from my initial viewing. That is Leave No Trace.
1: Sorry for making you worry about me. If we had a phone, I could have called you. We've always been able to communicate without all that. I think it might be easier on us if we try to
2: adapt. We're wearing their clothes.
3: We're in their house. we're, We're eating their food. We're doing their work. We have adapted the only place we can't be seen is in this house
1: we can still think our own thoughts like you said
0: so this was a film that when I initially saw it back in 2018 um, I didn't get an opportunity to see it theatrically I just it, it played by but I just didn't see it for whatever reason but when I eventually seen it after hearing so much talk about it Um, It was one that I remember not having any real strong opinions on. It it didn't leave much of an impact with me. I I thought from a purely technical standpoint, you know, everything was well done and everything was fine, but it didn't really do much for me. So uh, uh, needing to rewatch this for the show, it's definitely one that uh, had benefited on uh, letting it it sit with me for a couple years because it's one that I hadn't forgot about. You know, I think as the film was going along, there was nothing that I didn't really remember, but it's all about just getting to rewatch it with new perspective and, and getting all this time away. Way that really kind of benefited benefited the film overall. Um, this was one that I think a lot of people really liked from the uh, from 2018. I was looking up a lot of lists of people's favorite films of that year, and I found that I saw this at number one a lot, or in the top five, and and for good reason, man. This is um, primarily a two actor driven film, man. You have Ben Foster, who is already one of my favorite actors. As this, he's been in a bunch of stuff, and he always does a great job. Loved him in Hell or High Water. Um, recently, he was in the film Hustle, which he was great, and he's just a really uh, terrific actor. In fact, I even remember him from My Name Is Oral, crazy enough, you know. Uh, but you also have Thomasin McKenzie, who's uh, an up-and-coming actor, and she's just phenomenal. Uh, I, I haven't really seen her in a whole lot of films, but um, what I have seen her in, I mean, she, she does a very good job here, man. She, she really uh, bounces off of um, Ben Foster's character well. uh it's a very quiet film, very atmospheric. There are long stretches without dialogue where we have these two characters who are living on. In I mean, I don't really know how much is a spoiler or not because I think the trailer probably gives some away. But essentially, I won't get too into the specifics of it. But you have these two characters who are living on this in this park. This uh, this is government owned uh, park, and um, we start to learn why they're there. We learn more about Ben Foster's backstory and his daughter as well, and sort of where they're coming from and the adjustments of. Of trying to go into um, the real world. Um, I don't think I want to say much more than that because at a certain point, it, it feels like a, a very... Uh, uh a three act film where you have the first act which is entirely with just these two characters there's not a whole ton of dialogue it's a film where there's dialogue only where there needs to be where it's exposition as well as building character development uh and it's not as if they're completely off the grid in a way that we see them going into town when they need to um and and getting supplies when they need to and just living out in these in these woods and um uh, uh, being as uh, being very survivalist, so if the time came or where they were being uh, hunted after, or they're being looked for, they knew what to do, and they have all this stuff set up. And the second act of the film um, is sort of the being being. Um, in a different environment, so to speak. Uh, and that's really where, where I'll leave it at that, where they're basically, I know I keep saying leave it at that and then I talk about it more, but they're basically um, uh, forced into a more traditional kind of a living situation and the troubles that come along with it without being melodramatic, you know, or, or without being um, uh, very silly because it's very easy for um, a film like this where it's easy for the script, we're halfway through when it makes that change. A lot of other films could have done a very... Um, obvious kind of adjusting to um a new surrounding while having these big uh these these scenes where these actors have to go big or they have to have these big monologues to, to you know I call it the 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 Oscar bait moments where you have characters who are just going on and and you just you just see them glimmering with that um. That Oscar, like yes, I'm, this is this will be the scene they play at the Oscars, and that's not to say for all uh, uh, monologues and scenes like that. You know, I hey, hate what was I talking about? recently? I was talking about Pearl, and that that monologue in that film is amazing. It's hard to it's hard to exactly say what I'm saying. I think it's a little more obvious with certain films where you see actors really kind of going for it and really being big when they don't need to. Uh, what I love about Ben Foster's performance in the film and why his performance is so memorable is that he's an actor as well as specifically a character in this situation who says so much with his face because we we learn enough. ...about his backstory where he's coming from and sort of what he has to live with uh, mentally that he doesn't need to flat out say it. And while there are times where the film does hint at it more overtly, there are a lot of times where you just see the expression on his face of confusion or sadness or or having regrets or uh, not having to... um, uh, uh, verbalize it to the audience as well as it'd be easy for Thomas and Mackenzie's character Tom to um to be a force to get that exposition out but the script is a lot smarter than that this was written and directed by Deborah Granick, who uh, this was the only film I've seen of hers but I remember when she got a lot of talk back in 2010 uh, with the film Winter's Bone which was I think one of the first Jennifer Lawrence films to really get her uh, public recognition in terms of the new actor on the scene uh, she also did a film in 20, uh, 2004 called Down to the Bone which sounds familiar but I don't think I have seen it And she did a documentary in 2014 as well, Stray Dog, which I am not um, familiar with, uh, but it sounds pretty interesting. A contemplative portrait of Ron Stray Dog, Hall Biker, Vietnam vet, and lover of small dogs. And there's a cute. Cute kitten right here, man. That's that's adorable, man. I might have to actually check this film out. You win me over with kittens, Deborah Granick. But this film is so great because I think what initially a big, uh, not exactly a big problem, but in, but um, I said before this is divided kind of into, into three acts. It's really more divided into two halves, to to be more specific. Um, whereas in the second half, which I won't talk about, the second half is another um, change. Whereas you have these, um, you have a different situation that I think when I first saw it, my initial reaction, I think, I don't want to say I felt aimless because I can't speak for how I was, how I thought in 2018. Um, But I remember it being a bit of a drop. And while I do think that the first half of this is stronger, and there is a little bit of a lull in the middle, which isn't a detriment to the film, I'm going to say something that that'll compliment that. But I think where the film goes to at the at probably the last half hour, I think is the real heart of the film and is a real, uh, it really sums up the relationship between these two characters and what they're going through. I mean something happens at the very end of this film it's just a character that does something, that references uh, something earlier in the film that I mean, I found myself tearing up at that point. It's just a beautiful way to it's a very uh, beautiful final act of this film. Enhanced by like I said, these two great performances. I think of Ben Foster and Thomas and McKenzie weren't terrific actors as is. I don't think the film would have worked nearly as well on top of Deborah Granick's direction of knowing when to include dialogue, knowing to take in the atmosphere, the contrast between the greeneries of the woods to a more kind of flat and, uh, uh, um, more general kind of um, uh, living situation she, she does that very well man and uh, this was the this was the last film that she did and I'm, I'm very curious about what she ends up doing next because I thought her direction on this film was absolutely fantastic man and it, like I said it's never it never gets melodramatic it never gets comical in a way where you could see a film that's trying to get Oscars make the point of this film very obvious it'd be so easy to do that it makes such a forgettable uh, well be it probably still good film but the 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 acting the writing and directing it's so much smarter than that, and that's what enhances this to the next level of being one of the year's best. Really love this film, man. And the thing is, this is kind of why I love doing these lists because I allow uh, it allows me to uh, uh, get new perspectives on films that I whether or not it increases or decreases opinions. I do think it is very important to rewatch films, especially now. I know you have people like Pauline Kale who's yeah were very adamant about not rewatching films, and you can't really compare that situation to now, where she was going to the cinema. You know, she was she she her. Situation situation was way different than now where you had to actually go to the cinema go and do this but um there are just plenty of films that you, just, you really need fresh eyes on and, and whether whether you know how you feel five minutes, five days or five years later, man you you, you good art stays with you in a way that makes you reevaluate what your uh, opinion on it was. so uh, I think a lot of people know about this one a lot of people have probably seen it but in case you haven't, um, I think this film is available on Amazon to my knowledge I'm not sure but either way, a uh, really great film that actually leaves no trace at number nine from one of my very favorite filmmakers, Lars Von Trier's The House That Jack Built. I've never yelled at you before, Al.
1: But I'm about to now. What does that look like to you? What does that say there? Uh... Thirty-odd-six? Thirty-odd-six, that's correct. Yeah. It also says Full Metal Jacket. When I look inside... Get me a goddamn box, Al. And this time... Make sure it's got full metal jacket bullets in it. Is it too much to fucking ask that the contents of the box match what's written on the label? I can, I can see that. Uh, you're right. The label doesn't quite match the uh, c- contents. But right. what? What's That's correct. Yeah. But what, uh, thing is, what I can't see is that the 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 box was bought here in the shop. Okay. Well, I buy all my shit here. I have for 20 years. I'm in here almost every other week. What's wrong with you, Al? I'm sorry, I need to see a receipt. receipt? Yeah. Well, I don't have a fucking receipt. I don't ever recall getting a receipt here. Now I'm in a fucking hurry. Let me buy a new box. But this time, make sure it contains full metal jacket bullets.
0: All right. This was my third time watching this film, man. Ix, do you guys remember when this film came out and had that, uh, controversy with the MPAA? Yeah, man. The Laws of can't put out a film with some controversy, whether it be from audiences or from the MPAA or one thing or another, man. It was wild, man. Uh, I saw this film actually theatrically as part of a one-night thing that was unrated because I think the film had originally gone in NC-17 for violence and, um... Afterwards, the MPAA said they didn't license. Uh, they weren't. They didn't allow the film to be shown that way before. Uh, so before some other thing, I don't remember. Um, so the film that came out on streaming was an edited version until uh, it got released overseas first, which I imported that Blu-ray, and then it got a Shout Factory Blu-ray, which has the full uncut version of all two and a half hours of that house that jack built um and i don't even think the cuts were that major i think it was just a couple seconds of gore um i mean specifically in one scene if you've seen the film um that was a big contention for the uh, i guess actually two scenes in the film um but uh, either way, yeah, man, Lars von Trier—he's no no stranger to controversy. People who people see his films, they're shocked, they're repulsed. They go to Cannes and they walk out. I think this film actually had walkouts too. Yeah, I see it right here, man. This film had its world premiere at Cannes Film Festival on May 14th, 2018. It was reported that more than a half than a uh, hundred audience members, including some critics, walked out during the premiere. Though a six-minute standing ovation followed the screening, uh, some of the upset audience members continued to condemn. Continue condemn the film on social media for its extreme violence and nihilistic tone. Now, that last line is actually interesting, because while the film is very violent and very gruesome and upsetting, I think Addict's Core, and this is gonna be crazy, you gotta bear with me, for, you gotta bear with me guys. Oh, you holding on? You holding on to something? That's right, I'm not joking around. Hold on to something. Alright, you're not holding on to something, I'm gonna say it anyways. The film Addict's Core is a pix-black comedy. It really is, man, and this last viewing was more obvious. It's a crime film. It's a horrific film. I don't think it's quite a horror film. I look at it more as more a, uh, a character uh, study of a psychopath who uh, keeps getting away with these horrific crimes and, and varying, I mean right from, the the film is broken up into five segments where you have uh, different moments in the serial killer's life uh, the serial killer Jack played by Matt Dillon who is having a long conversation with the late great Bruno Gans uh, and he's going through um, some of his kills that he's gone through in his life as well as his philosophy on a number of different things if you've seen any Lars von Schur films he it's very philosophical, and uh, this has a lot of relation actually to *Inferno Maniac* and in the narration, and where you have two characters basically um, um, talking about the film, and uh, it takes breaks into uh, characters uh, theorizing about different things. Some things, you know, I, I, I understand. Some things I don't. It's, it's and at times as well, it feels almost like a, uh, a Lars von Trier commenting on his own films as well. It's, I think there was a lot of talk about this might this might being his last film, which I hope isn't true. I hope we get more films from him, but. Um, I think that came through during one sequence in the film that had clips from uh, many, many of his films. Um, said that that was very uh, 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 something that something that was very. Uh it stood out a lot. i just seen this footage as if this was, if this was going to be his, his final film, then um, it, it in my opinion, it be very fitting. It, it kind of fits in with the tone of um, Nymphomaniac in a way, where it has a very dark tone, but it's also very comedic at times, because there are a lot of moments in the film that are overtly funny. You have Jack, who is an OCD, and there's a great sequence in the film where he, after he kills someone, he keeps uh, going back into the house because he imagines that he missed a spot with the blood, and then he has an interaction with another character about that. It's very very comedic, and, uh, the soundtrack as well, playing fame by David Bowie in a very, um, darkly comedic scene, and I think that's the thing to remember, is that although the film is very dark at times, including, you know, I think there was one sequence in the film that a lot of people had a problem with, which, um, is definitely horrific, but I think the CGI in that scene does kind of hurt the impact, in my opinion, at least, um, but it's a horrific scene, as it should be, because it does show the horror of it, and, and that scene as well kind of goes into what, um, uh, Jack is, is is narrating about about hunting and and kind of the relation between uh, humans and animals and, and stuff and um. As way the film is shot, I think is really is really great as well. I really loved Lars von Trier. I mean, he's always done this kind of uh, this handheld sort of. Uh, I don't even want to say lo fi I don't think it's the right term. But after Antichrist and Melancholia, which looked um, so worked for it, were beautiful-looking films, I really love the um, kind of more. I would say dogma in a way style. I mean, in, purely in the way that it is um, filmed, not in the dogma uh, ninety-five rules, because you can't compare. This is this is not. I mean, that that was this is not the idiots. Um, but th- but I'm talking about that style where at times uh, you feel almost like the actors are getting their free- their own free reign to do what they want and the camera doesn't exactly know what they're going to do and all. Um, and I know that Von Trier has had his other, f- I mean, has had his other films like uh, uh, Europa, which hey man, that's actually coming to Blu-ray soon. Look at that man, about time. But uh, uh, you know, he has his other films like Manderlay and Dogville and, and and films like Dancer in the Dark. Uh, you guys ever see that film he did? He wrote with um, uh, Thomas Vinterberg. What is that movie Dear Wendy, uh, man, what a really good film that is, that no one talks about. Man, that's a solid film. Give that one a watch if you haven't actually seen it. But I really love this film, man. Matt Dillon, he's he's an actor who I've always liked, but seeing him in the film, he's 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 got a lot of charisma, man. He's very charming. He's very funny, but he's also very scary, man, at the same time because that's there. There are multiple sequences in the film where he, the tone of it, where him and the script shift so well. Uh, one of my favorite sequences in the film is uh, also another great actor working whose name I never know how to say. Is it Riley KO? Riley Kug? I have no idea how to say her name, man. You guys know she was related to Elvis? That's crazy, man. It's wild. Um, but that whole interaction, it starts off as very, um, uh, as one thing, and then it gets very comedic in a way that makes me laugh out loud, and then it, get, and then it ends very horrifically, it, but then it ends very comedically again, it's just like the way that it bounces the tone, which I think won't work for some people, and Lars Von Trier is a filmmaker who people are either, you're either on board with or not he has a very distinct style, and if you don't like his previous films, then I can also, I mean I'm not going to make any guarantees, there's no guarantees in life besides you, get, you live and you die uh, but you, you're probably not going to be big into this film, so if you've seen specifically more of his recent films this post kind of rehab films that he's made since his um, his depression trilogy of Antichrist Melancholia and Nymphomaniac one and two. Um Although you definitely shouldn't skip out on his previous films as well. I think I've seen all of his films except for about two or three, and uh, I think I like or love all of them. Even Mandalay, which is probably my least favorite, I think is has actually some very interesting uh, uh, moments in the film, and that kind of goes into uh, on top of it being a, a very handheld style of directing, I really like how that film is framed um, um, of it being something like a play. Uh, I really like that as well. But as the film goes along, it's two and a half hours, but it kind of flies by for me. I think it helps because it's broken into segments, and the editing as well, it, it, it's a slow film, but it, there's also a lot of interesting editing. Uh, Lars von Trix to cut to a lot of stock footage, a lot of different pieces, and um, I, I liked a lot of the flashbacks that he did, a lot of the stuff when Jack was a kid, uh, and, you know, and, and shows his, uh, not exactly his upbringing, but kind of how this evil has always kind of been in him, and he's always kind of, and he's always gotten away with um, these horrible things. As well as I was talking about before, the violence in the film, there's a moment in the film that I think shocked a lot of people as, uh, as a kid, which I think is in the trailer, and yeah, it, it rightfully is horrific you know and, and but it just goes into the tone of the film where you watch that and it's very dark and it, it's ugly it's like oh man but hey man it, that happens and uh you know but but then you get many see but then you get many moments in the film where it's it is very comedic you know um yeah man this was my like I said this was my third time watching and I've, I've just loved this film since I first saw it you know um I think even if it wasn't directed by Von Schrier, which I'm fully willing to admit that a lot of I mean for all of us man you, oh Jesus man jeez, I'm unprofessional you see a lot of films and you you go to see a new film from one of your favorite filmmakers. I think, on some level, man, even if you don't want to, there is going to be a little bit of a bias. And that's not to say I, you know, I love all of Von Trier's films. I was just saying, Amanda, I'm not really the biggest fan of that film and all that, but it's still interesting. Um, but what this film does, the different stories, um, the different characters that come in and out, Jimmy Davies has a small part in it, and he's really great in the film. Uh, Uma Thurman plays a very obnoxious character in, in uh, one of the beginning sequences of the film in a very comedic scene where she just keeps uh, uh, poking him and just saying, Oh, I bet you're a serial killer, you know, you're going to have to kill me, this and that. Uh, uh, not exactly verbatim, but you got know what I'm saying. She was like, oh, that was a bad idea, I shouldn't have gotten this car with you. You don't really look, you, you know, you look like a serial killer, but I don't know. Uh, it's very funny like that. Not not going to be for everybody, I, I totally get that, but I just, I completely love this film, and uh, it, it's just one that uh, has, on my third watch, I still love it, man, and Lars von Trier, God bless him, man. I really hope that he has another film in him because... But if this is his last film, he chooses... I mean, he's been doing this for a long time. If this is his last film, man... And I know he's got the Kingdom TV series, which I think was done previously, but he's he's continuing it now. I'm not exactly sure about that. Um, Okay, yeah, it looks like season three is coming in November. So I might have to keep an eye on that, even though I don't uh, watch TV. But uh, either way... Love the film. Love Von Treer. I can say it a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred more times, man. This is one of the best films of the year and one of the best films in Von Trier's filmography. And which is crazy because it's a later film. And how often do you have filmmakers' later films be one of their best? Who does he think he is? Scorsese? All right, man. At my number seven, that is The House That Jack Built. Speaking of Scorsese, hey, man, this guy was in a Scorsese film. We have Jonah Hill's directorial debut, mid-90s. Hey! Y'all not supposed to be around here. Get the fuck out. Hey, come here! Shut, Shut up! It. Don't throw rocks at me. Fuck you, little man. Get the fuck off the property, all right? Come here! Come hey, here! Sunburn. sunburn, sunburn. What are you doing? Don't get fucked up like the rest of these little niggas. Come at? here!
3: Let's Let's like this nigga's a rent-a-cop.
2: Get, get too fucked to up. Come, to you.
3: come here!
1: You're, you're not even a real cop.
2: Sunburn, Stevie. This nigga's a rent-a-cop. Hey, no, come here! I'm wrong you, rent-a-cop?
0: Fuck you, nigga. I make more than all you, nigga. fuck you. (laughs) What the fuck you doing skating with these white boys? Niggas don't skate? Your surf's up, motherfucker? That's who you think you are? Hey, the little nigga with the Toys R Us badge, come here. you can't say nigga, I don't think. You fucking Sheryl Crow looking motherfucker. I don't know who that is, but bitch, fuck you. You look Samoan, motherfucker. You look Samoan-ass nigga. Alright, that that was funny. That was pretty funny. That was funny. Get the fuck out of here. Another film that benefited from a rewatch, man. On the second viewing of this film, I just loved this film, man. I was completely engaged with this from beginning to end and what a confident and interesting debut from Jonah Hill who's become one of my favorite actors as this man I mean I'm you know all the Judd Apatow stuff is fine you know I like Superbad I like uh you know this is the end you know those films are fine and all that but um he's one of these guys who like man like the past like 10 years he's been doing so much interesting cool stuff I didn't see Moneyball but I I heard he was very good in that and I think that was the first time I heard uh, uh him in that film where he wanted to take more um, uh, dramatic roles and or at least not as like uh, uh, big uh, comedic roles and he's done comedic stuff since you know like 21 Jump Street I think is very good even the sequel as well but he's been in a lot of stuff since like War Dogs which I think is actually a good film as well um that that it's just uh, I think he's become one of the most interesting uh, guys working right now, and it's really interesting to see his uh, uh, career trajectory, man. But in a good way. So this was a film that, importantly, I should probably say up front that uh, mid nineties. It's a film that could easily have been just a nostalgia fest of a time and a place where you remember you were and your friends skateboarding, listening to punk music, and all that. Let me tell you, man, I don't have any nostalgia for this era. In fact, I hate nostalgia. I think nostalgia is a detriment to our, uh, to artistic creativity. You know, I was this was not my scene. When I was uh, in the 90s, I, I you know, or early 2000s, I should say, I tried to skateboard once and I fell and I said, "Never again, man! I, that is not for me. I can't skateboard." So I got to go into this thing. I don't have any kind of emotional stake in this period of time or these kinds of people. You know, I didn't know people like this, uh, so I'm just coming at this from my own kind of general film logic perspective. But even with that said. Terrific film, man. We follow this main character, uh, what's his name? Stevie, played by Sonny Sho Shul- I can't pronounce the names today. You guys remember him from The Killing of a Sacred Deer? Yeah, he was the son in that film, man. Oh man, what a crazy film that was. Great film, though. He was also in the House of the Clock and X walls. He wasn't the main kid in that. I think it was one of the other kids. Maybe the bully. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen that film. Anyways, man, but so he's living with his uh, his single ma and his brother, man. His brother played by another one of my favorite actors working, Lucas Hedges, and his ma, another one of my favorite actors working Catherine Waterston who's not in the film enough which is a problem with the film I do wish uh, we had more in the film because she is a very interesting actor that uh, I'll always like to see more of man uh, but she, they're both great in the film. But he's living with his brother, man, and his brother is really awful to him, man. I mean, he beats him up viciously, man. Just gives him bruises, you know. Gives, you know, makes him bleed and stuff. I mean, he's just a kid who doesn't really have any real friends. He's just kind of hanging around. Tries to be good, but you know, general kind of uh, kid behavior stuff. He like does things that he shouldn't, man. And then like, he just he just eventually gets involved with a crowd of skater kids, man. And the kids are are you know what what what's so great about the film is you know they're jerks, but they're like realistic jerks you know where they're obnoxious they're, they're kids man they're teens where they do they do stupid things they say stupid things they act stupidly in a way where I'm like man I don't I would not hang with these kids but it's not in an off-putting way where you're like man I don't want to watch a whole film with this because you have, I mean it's one thing to have obnoxious characters but if it's to the point where you just don't want to watch the film man because you don't want to beat those characters then you failed right there as a writer and thankfully Jonah Hill did not fail as a writer because the what he does with the film is that as he goes along man we start to see Stevie kind of entertain himself with these kids and start to try to uh, find his own way growing up, man. It's really a coming-of-age story of him and these kids who are basically them against the world. They're going out there, they're skating, they're saying on-PC things, they're listening to loud music. You got one kid running around in the camcorder. Um, But they're also, you know, they're also fleshed out, man. We start to learn more about the characters, and um, one of the act, and I think a lot of this film are uh, first-time actors, man. Now, Sonny Schultz Catherine Watterson and Lucas Hedges are not, but um, I think a lot of the other kids uh, I think were either first-time actors or uh, hadn't really done much before one of the kids man I wanted to bring up who plays one of the main kind of friends is this kid Ray played by Nakel uh, Smith who is really great in the film, man? There's one sequence in the film where he talks to Stevie, kind of giving some perspective after something big happens, kind of giving a morality check of some of these other kids and how and where Stevie's at, in a way that feels realistic. It doesn't feel like here's the point in the film where the character explains what's wrong with the protagonist and how he needs to fix himself, because ultimately Ray is a flawed character as well. But Ray does feel a very like a very honest character when he has that sequence with Stevie, where he where he wants to talk with him and be a little more down to earth with him. If feels honest it feels rewarding it doesn't feel scripted i'm very curious how much the film is scripted because a lot of times you have a lot of overlapping dialogue and a lot of reactions that seem very genuine a lot of laughter and stuff um it's all great man and, and Stevie as well I mean when you have a kid like this who has to lead a whole film he better be a good actor man because if he's a bad actor you just brought down your film man and thankfully he is a very good actor man all, really everyone in the film you know even a lot of the first times man who would be easy to kind of go like well they're a first time actor because you know they just I don't know how Jonah Hill directed this man but it seems at times so natural and a lot of the uh, moments in the film and sequences feel so natural um, I like I said before I do wish that Catherine waterston was in the film more because there's one moment in the film that i thought was actually it wasn't really played up but i thought was very heartfelt where she kind of talks to stevie um it's a very brief scene even in the middle it'd be very easy to put at the end of the film where she kind of talks about like you know what happened to us we used to you know be best friends and stuff and and we start to see her loneliness as a person um with a cameo by harmony Corrine, funny enough i was like wait a minute what's going on here man um and uh, but we also Stevie growing up and having that rebellious era where he era where he, he doesn't he doesn't really know where he fits in so he kind of clings to these skater kids and there's a lot of a lot of funny laugh out loud moments in the film and it's a very unpc film in a way that feels honest and natural where you have kids saying just crazy things because hey man when you're a kid you say crazy things you know I said crazy things when I was a kid hell I still say crazy things not to like the stuff in this movie get me wrong I'm one of crazy things like I think this film is better than this film you know uh, but it's all in the eye of the beholder I'm only messing around you know, don't say bad things, guys, it's not nice, but, uh, yeah, man, I just love a lot of the sequences and them together, and the way the film ends, what I, it's not exactly the end of the story, but it's a good stopping point for the film, because it doesn't overstay Welcome. it's under an hour and a half, and it flies by, man, it flies by like a kid on a skateboard, and, um, what I was saying before Leave No Trace, on a second viewing, my opinion of this film, just went, actually, this, my opinion on this film went way up, because the first time I saw it, I liked it a lot, but this time, for whatever reason, man, I just could, I just could not get this film out of my head. There's so many sequences I just kept replaying, and so many moments that are funny and sad and honest, man, in a way that seems so natural. And again, I just can't wait to see what Jonah Hill does next, man. I uh, I'm just looking forward to whatever whatever film he does next. It's uh, such an interesting, great film, and uh, one of the best of the year, man. It kind of goes without saying. I don't even know why I said that. because on the list, of course, it's one of the best of the year. But I love the film, man. I watched it on. I think on Amazon or something. I try to say where I watch these films on. Um, I should also say with the Hellstack like Jack belt. I had the Blu-ray of that, but um, you can find that pretty easily. Uh, anyways, man, mid-90s, great film. All right, man, a fresh cup of coffee here to talk about the next film. And uh, I realized that in my previous recordings, man, I, I got some of the numbers wrong. I, I, I mixed them up. Uh, this one actually is my number six, though. Uh, I try to edit around those, and, but some I just left in. So if you hear that, just disregard it, man. Anyways, number six, man. Uh, this is the actually the only film on the list, man, that was a first-time watch. And for a first-time watch to be this high up, it's really got to mean something, man. Uh, this got a lot of talk when it first came out, and it's one that I always heard about, but I actually really d- didn't know anything about it. Um, writer, director, actor Jim Cummings in his feature film debut of Thunder Road.
3: She used to sing Thunder Road to me when I was going to sleep. And I'm not a singer or dancer or, you know, anything. My daughter's a creative one. But people said it'd be a good idea if I brought it in. So so I brought it in. And, uh, yeah, so I'm going to sing it. Okay. I had it working this morning, I promise. Uh just fucking work. Come on, please. Sorry. Uh, it's not gonna work. Uh, yeah, could you do that? That'd be great. It's just uh, it's just it's track four. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a beautiful song. Uh, how do you explain it? Um, it's a song about this guy telling this girl to leave their small town forever. to changed a lot. Should we just call the manufacturer? Changed a lot forever for the better. And my mom really loved it. It's not going to work. No, he's saying it's not going to work. I'm sorry. Uh, well, typical. I, uh, I don't even know if it's going to work without the song, to be honest with you. But I did a lot of planning for it. And I love my mom. <laughs> and so I'm just going to do it. And I don't know what
0: else to do. So. so as I suspected when I initially watched the film, uh, this is based off of short film, actually. You look at Jim Cummings' uh, filmography, and he's somebody who's uh, well-versed in his short films. He's been doing He just has a bunch of them. And the uh, the whole opening of this, of this film, which uh, takes place at a funeral of Jim Cummings, who plays the main character, uh, Jim, he's giving a speech at his mom's funeral. And it's uh, it's an incredibly well done scene because this single scene right here uh, really sets the tone for the entire film uh, because it's an interesting kind of film to describe and Jim is an interesting character to try to uh, grapple with in terms of how do you explain a character like this to somebody who he's somebody who's uh, who's. Uh, uh, Mentally unstable, but in a realistic—mentally unstable, but in a realistic way, where he has these outbursts and he's prone to anger. But it's in a way where it doesn't feel melodramatic and it doesn't feel uh, Hollywood. You know, it, there's times in the film. Where, you know, well, I'll get into that in a little bit, but you have uh, his character Jim, uh, played by Jim Cummings, who is uh, having pretty much a, a, something of a meltdown in his life. His mom just died, he's going through a divorce. He's trying to keep a steady relationship with his daughter, Crystal, played by Kendall Farr. Uh, the other, he's a cop, but the other cops don't really uh, like him all that much because he's kind of a pain. He's got a friend, uh, his friend Nate, played by uh, Nikan Robinson, who, uh, you know, he's a well developed character right there, man, because you can see that he wants to be a good friend of them, you know, invites more for dinner, tries to be a good guy, but we just see the strain and how difficult it could be, how difficult it is for Nate to uh, uh, keep the friendship going with him because Jim is, at times, he's very just uh, unstable, but it, but in a way where he's never, uh, you never don't like him, even when he reaches, you know, times of, of just, uh, uh, you know, where he's clearly in the wrong, but uh, what I love about this film and what I love specifically about Jim Cummings directing, writing, and performance is that he he has the—I uh, mean—the whole opening of the film, man. Uh, it's a long monologue, and it's very easy for an actor to uh, kind of a- actor, writer, director—you know—the triple duo, uh, triple—not uh, duo. Am I talking about uh, triple threat right there? To uh, to let his uh, narcissism get in the way, where where they ha- almost feel like they have to prove something. Just look at me—I'm saying this long monologue, and you know that's great and all. But what sets this film apart is that. Um, it's the it's the performance of that character, man. Because the film is constantly doing a balancing act of uh, comedy and drama, both I mean, oftentimes in the same sequence. You know, in that opening sequence, man, you really feel for him. He's very heart wrenching scene where he's talking about his ma, and by the same time, there's also some uh, you know, there's some funny moments. He wants to do this this whole ridiculous dance, but he can't get the CD to work to play uh, Thunder Road, and uh, it's just a whole great scene. And and but I think probably my favorite sequence in the film is a long monologue. Analog that he has um, probably about halfway through, or it's so a little more than halfway, where he just has a total breakdown. Where uh, he has this whole big, this big speech in front of the other police officers, and that as well really sets the tone for the film because uh, in that same, in that sequence, you're constantly shifting, man, because he'll, you really feel for him. He's pouring his heart out into the scene, and but he's also stripping down and into his clothes. They want all of his clothes, and it you know comes to the point, it's his underwear. But it, and it's been it's comical, but it's but it's so. Uh, uh, it's so heartfelt and sad and emotional but then you have a, but then he'll you have another character who comes in he'll, he'll you know Jim will yell hey you got remember that time you got me breakfast and uh, the other cop will go yeah I, I remember that man and Jim will go oh thanks man I really appreciated that you know it's a balancing act that does it so well along with the great sequence in the middle with uh, Mason Blair is it mason or Macon Blair Mason Blair sounds more uh, sounds more right but that scene as well where he keeps telling he you know he tells him not to swear and he keeps accidentally swearing in a way um, it's great and it's not just the Jim Cummings show. It'd be easy for him, just to, I mean, he isn't—he isn't the whole film. But I think what helps him is benefited by a lot of the secondary characters as well. Uh, I forgot the actor who plays his sister and his wife. Man, I'm gonna—I'm gonna mix up the names. You have Jocelyn. De- DeBoer Bo- De Debor, and Chelsea Edmondson, man, and I apologize, I don't remember which one is which. Um, but they're both, they both do uh, really great in the film, and uh, especially with his, uh, his soon-to-be ex-wife. I don't remember if they were actually divorced or not in the film, where they were going through a divorce. I'm pretty sure they were divorced because she had another boyfriend at that point, or something like that. I don't exactly remember, but uh, either way, it, it, the film doesn't uh, make, uh. Either one of them out to be the bad guy in that situation. Also, I should say that I believe his sister is actually played by uh, uh, Chelsea Edmondson. Uh, looks like that's the case, man. But uh, it, it shows that they had a troubled relationship as is, and neither one of them is directly at fault. But they both want the best for her daughter, for their daughter. And you can see at times where both will make a make a uh, 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 you know a mistake where it's, it's very easy to blame the other one for that. It all comes down to the writing, man, and how you know everyone really. Is on the same wavelength in terms of, in terms of the specific tone that the film sets. I mean, I think the poster right here, man, where you have him kind of doing this pose in front of a funeral, in front of a casket, really kind of sets the stage for the film. And as it was going along, it's just a great character, uh, great character piece, a great character-driven film. Uh, and then when you get into the third act, it's got a very bittersweet ending where it all kind of uh, it, it, it it wraps up in a way where it feels very honest and and real, but not downbeat. You know, it feels like this character who who maybe doesn't have a total transformation, but actually. Went through this journey on, on on his way and has taken these experiences of the women in his life, you know, or you know his, his ma, his sister, his his uh, uh, ex wife or soon to be ex wife, and his daughter, man, and has taken that into what's going to be probably a better and a, a better next step for him, you know. The film, uh, Jim Cummings, he just goes past all cliches and, and makes a very funny, very heartfelt and sad film that really just stuck with me, man. It's one that when I, after I watched it, it really Really just made me want to see what else he's done because um, he's done two feature films since, both of which I've gotten actually a good amount of talk. Uh, the Wolf of Snow Hollow and the Beta Test. Uh, is that the is that the name of it? The Wolf of Snow Hollow, man. Let me let me look up that. Yeah, the Wolf of Snow Hollow. which I've been hearing some great things about, man. I'm not really too familiar with Jim Cummings' background. I I, I guess he's done some visual effects work. Uh, uh, he's been a producer on a lot of stuff. He's he's somebody who this ain't his first rodeo, man. He this is not an overnight success of this film, man. You look you just look him up and you see all the work he's been involved with and all the other films he's produced and and it's just a true artist, man. And and really uh, just gives it his all in this film. It's a hell of a feature debut, man. He just totally knocked out of the park. And and after watching this film, it just makes me wanna. It really Made me want to just follow up with this follow with this following two features, man. Which I, I both of them I've heard are fantastic, actually. Uh, so yeah, man, Thunder Road. Really love this film. Like uh, just one of the big highlights of the year. Uh, I watched this on Canopy. I'm sure it's probably streaming elsewhere as well if you're looking for it. But check it out, man. At number six is, is Thunder Road. And actually, funny enough, man, what was it? Uh, the Robert Mitchum film Thunder Road. That was what 1958. Which I also did a. Uh, uh, that that list as well, and that didn't that film didn't make the list. But it's kind of funny, man. Second uh, list in uh, second list we got with a film called Thunder Road, man. Anyways, I'm gonna stop it right there, man. This chair keeps squeaking, and this cat wants attention. I'm gonna give this cat some attention, and then we're gonna go into number five. All right, all right. In honor of the late great Peter Bogdanovich, we honor him with my number five pick, directed by the late great Orson Welles. We have The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, what's that about the movie? You mean the one? We they- don't talk about the movie. Uh, Try the Baron here, under torture. He might school a little,
3: he writes scripts. So Mr. Hannaford likes to say.
1: Please, don't pretend to be stupid. Now, you're supposed to be the brainy one in this club, or this, I don't know, this clan, whatever it is you call it. It's a
0: highly informal organization, lady.
1: The tape that we were hearing, the subject is God. Is he a member?
0: She. We're all ruled with the
1: wind, aren't we, lady? So if uh, the Lord is a lady and God's will is
0: her will, then we can all relax and stop expecting the universe to be logical. You heard the man, lady. We're right back where we started. This is what re are all about, man. Let me tell you about me watching this film, man. This is my third time watching this, and I have had quite a relationship with this film. Now, uh, I don't think I really need to go too much into the production on this film. If you're unfamiliar with it, this was an unfinished Orson Welles film that through uh, there was a whole history of trying to get this film completed until in 2018 we had the great Oscar-winning editor Bob Murawski along with many other forces, Peter Bogdanovich, Noah Baumbach, Wes Anderson. Everybody kind of pulled, pulled together to get this film completed the best way they could based off Orson Welles' notes, uh, uh, rough drafts that he had, uh, 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 rough print as well. He had some sort of comp- some completed-ish version. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. I'm not going to get into that. But, anyway, so, so I knew about this film. I was like, oh my gosh, the quote-unquote final Orson Welles film is finally being finished. And I remember when I watched it, and I had no idea what to make of it. I actually had a pretty strong reaction negatively, uh, which was silly to think of, because, which is silly to um, to, to look back on, because it, and whether or not the film works or doesn't, the fact that it exists at all is truly a testament to the creative artists and the legacy living on. And that's not to say that I was like, oh man, that was... That was a waste of time. They shouldn't have done that. No, not like that at all. It was more of just, I didn't really, it was so, uh, it was definitely not what I was expecting. And so it was a film that lingered with me and sat in my mind. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to revisit this film. And this was sometime a year or two ago. And I rewatched it and I loved it. I mean, I loved it, man. I was like, wow, I get it now. I, I get exactly what this is going for. It may have also helped that I, that before my second viewing, I had seen F for Fake, which was an Orson Welles documentary, uh, which I think this film is, a, is close to in terms of editing and filmmaking. That film, uh, that documentary, uh, it feels dreamlike. At times feels very magical, as it should. And, and watching that and then watching this film which I didn't watch that too close to this film, but I had that in mind. But being able to vibe with this film, seeing a lot of the humor, getting with a lot of the craziness of it, the XX it was remarkable. So then watching it again, man, the third time I had a totally more, I had much more of an appreciation for it I think this film is almost brilliant. I think this is one of Orson Welles' best films. Now, you gotta put that asterisk, man, because we're going based off of many different. I'm not gonna get into it. I also wanna recommend really quick. The companion documentary, which came out as well at the same time, which is also on Netflix. I didn't know. If, I don't know if I mentioned that or not. This was a Netflix film, which leads me to, leads me to a point that I said previously in one of the cozy corner cinemas, man. That it is a criminal. It is a criminal offense. It's a crime. It's a shame. It's a sham. That this is not on Blu-ray, man. There's no physical release, this man. This should be a Criterion title, man. Come on. Uh, but anyways, man. What was I talking about before? Yeah, you gotta check out that documentary, they'll love me when I'm dead.
1: Everything else I've ever done has been controlled, but I want to go further. It's a story of the last day of the director's life. The darling of Hollywood
0: who fell out of favor.
1: Wait a minute, that's Orson, is it? Orson, is that you? Everybody will think it's autobiographical, but it's not. Yeah, bullshit. Orson was such a perfectionist. Action. I think we have ourselves a confrontation. Cut. I fucked that up. Take 21.
2: He was creating an environment where others would get sucked into it.
1: (laughs) It was this circus of scattered souls. It's Orson. It'll be something. We were totally out of reality. And he said, if anything ever happens to me, I want you to promise me you'll finish the picture.
0: Because that documentary goes primarily into the production, into the background, into the post-production, the failed um, uh, successes of trying to get this made. And overall, what it kind of led me with... Uh, which uh, another documentary from 2018 that didn't make the list but is also great film worker about uh, the, the assistant to Stanley Kubrick but both these documentaries kind of showed the um, the true grossness of Hollywood of how they are they are willing to throw aside these legends who have who have garnered them these studios and these executives these statuses and made them this money and have done everything for them I mean they talk about Orson Welles in the in the documentary how he could not get funding for for to be able to complete the film and he would have these fundraisers need would and they just threw him aside, man, and sort of just like, yeah, all right, whatever, man. You know, you're old news. I mean, geez, man, it's 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 truly sickening, man. Because what we have here, and I also got to mention with Bob Moraski this is not even his first time completing an, a, a, a completing a, an unfinished film. You guys ever see from Duke Mitchell that uh, that uh, Grindhouse releasing put out uh, Gone with the Pope? What was the original name for that? Kiss the Ring, or is that for Masker, Masker Mafia style, man? I don't actually remember. But either way, that was another uncom that was another unfinished film that. Uh, Bob Morawski edited, and man. God bless him, man. Bob Morawski is doing the Lord's work, man. And he also won. I mentioned before, won the Oscar for the Hurt Locker. And I was watching an interview with him where he was at. Um, I don't know where this premiered at, but he was. Uh, they basically talked uh, talked about how he tried, how he uh, you know reconstructed a lot of it and stuff. Which I, I do think that the documentary, um, The Other Side and uh, uh, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, uh, doesn't actually touch on any of Bob Morawski's editing stuff. There was actually there's a cool clip on YouTube about the um, them shipping. The elements to the United States of it, and it is. It, I think that is very cool. It would have been uh, nice to include the documentary. I, I would have watched a whole other hour of the documentary just about the editing of this because I find that so fascinating. But the film here, it's it's, uh, it's it's crazy to think that. I wonder, you know, I don't know if Orson Welles intended for this to be his last film, but this definitely feels like an epitaph, or it feels like a like a not an appetite, not word. it feels like a conclusion to a long fil- uh, filmography, especially to the ending, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. But we have, I mean, the plot is a little loose on this admittedly. Basically, we have John Huston, uh, great director John Huston. John I mean, there's a lot of big people in the film. We'll get to that in a little bit. But John Huston playing this guy, Jake Hannaford, and he has this film that is a really uh, uh, wild, experimental kind of film, which was based off of, um, oh, man, what was the Antonioni film? Oh, geez, Louise, man. I'm going to forget the name of it now. Uh, somebody's yelling at me, uh, which I'm just gonna look up right here, man, because I know I'm gonna forget it, and it's um. Uh, uh Actually, well, it was Zabriskie Point. I apologize, man. I was looking up Antonioni Desert Film, and it it's giving me Red Desert. Uh, I have not seen Zabriskie Point, but it, it's basically a take on that. We have these characters kind of either wandering through the desert or these uh, long sequences with this woman who I believe was dating Orson Welles or was involved with him. I, I, I just had the name up right here. you think I'd be more professional at this point in uh, making these kind of uh, making these videos, but not quite. Or audios, if you're listening to on Spotify. Um the actor is, I just had her name appear. Oh my gosh, this is not my day. Oja Kodar, who also co wrote the film as well. But basically, the film jumps around a lot. The, the, the first half of the film has very sporadic editing. It's a lot of quick cuts. A lot of, uh, there's you know, a lot of funny dialogue back and forth. A lot of actually laugh out loud funny moments, man. there And it, and it has this sort of, uh, this energy that's going through it. These All these reporters are trying to uh, get in with um, Jake Hannaford and interview him and all these photographers. And they're going to his house and there's this crazy party. And people are going in and out of the film, man. You got Peter Bogdanovich, who's one of the main characters. I mean, you got a lot of people in here. You have Edmund O'Brien. Cameron Mitchell move for a little bit uh, who else in this film? You got Susan Strasberg, of course, Norman Foster. Uh, it, it's just a crazy Dennis Hopper as a cameo in the film. Hey, by the way, man, see if you can notice that I drink your blood, I eat your skin, Mark. That was pretty cool to see. Um, but it's, it's real wild, man. The, the first half is, is really just kind of like this crazy party. They're, they're going back and watching the film. They're analyzing the film. Oh, what does Hannaford mean by this? You know, they had these observations on the film. They're, they're Is he, is he real? Is he a phony? This or that? Um, which I imagine a lot of that was. I wonder, you know, with Orson Welles kind of seeing himself in a way through the uh, Jake Hannaford character of this is this kind of otherworldly kind of uh, uh, filmmaker, kind of like idol sort of person, and the the uh, uh, results because of that, the the, the uh, constant uh, uh, culture around um, these kind of larger than life filmmakers, and then in the second half, what, I, what it's really enjoyable is that it gets into kind of like this quieter, more uh, meditative place. We have a, a lot of a lot of music goes away. The editing kind of calms. Down a bit, and a lot of people go away. We have these long sequences with, with Jake, and and just these great long dialogue stretches, man. Um, and especially getting into the ending as well, which I want to talk about. Is that the, the uh, I think this this viewing of the film, uh, the very end of this film, uh, man, it was like one of those moments that I I don't. It's like, I I can't even tell you what I felt in that moment, man. The, the, The final shot in this film. Actually, the final 15 seconds of this film, I think is such a... It feels like such an end to one career and kind of like one end of an era. I mean, you know, it's sort of like Hollywood being in this new transition, and it's sort of like something about – it's something involving a drive-in. It. It's like oh, – I, I, I don't want to give it away. It's not even a spoiler, but I think you got to see it for yourself. And the end of this film within a film, this is a brisky point kind of film, it's just a, such a fun film that, um, you know, I'd be. we'll never know what uh, what Wells' version would have been in a lot of ways. We can speculate a lot of it, but I guess with seeing – F for fake, and especially with uh, you know what what Morawski was uh, going off of and a lot of the notes and stuff. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the people who are either in the film have passed or have, or, or you know are getting older and stuff. So it's a lot of these a lot of people in this that you gotta have to. Just taking it, taking into accounts or taking into notes or anything like that. You know, like I said, I I do wish that the documentary had gotten into that a little bit more. But uh, I just thought this was such a fun and interesting kind of reflection on a career. And John Houston is a great actor. Which, by the way, Danny Houston, his son, does some ADR for him in the film, and you can't even tell, man. There's a couple times where I was like, is that John? Is that Danny? Danny's another one of my favorite actors, man. Uh, I mean, John Houston's a great filmmaker, but Danny Houston's a great actor. But uh, yeah, love this film, man. If it doesn't hit for you the first time like it did for me, uh, you know just know getting into, I, I would say familiarize yourself with some of Orson Welles' later work. And, uh, you know, I found myself watching a lot of uh, interviews with uh, Orson Welles, either on like Johnny Carson or, uh, or um, some of them, uh, Murawski at, uh, at uh, some the, the film festival. Uh, anyways, man, we'll get into it all day but other side of the wind love this film uh just i'm sure if i watch you again it's going to go up in in uh opinion but uh yeah we really need a blu-ray of this man this is kind of criminal it's only streaming but yeah check it out man it's, it's fantastic at number four another film that doesn't have a blu-ray and another film from one of my favorite filmmakers uh still alive this one we have don't worry he won't get far on foot from gus van sant hey
2: uh, is this Donnie? Yeah, who's this? Hey Donnie, this is John
1: Callahan. And I'm the Neon Cripple from outer space.
2: Oh, the man with the tangerine hair? Well, I always thought of my hair as an electric orange. But, yeah, that's me. Uh, look, I got your number off the board. I'm calling because I need a sponsor. I do have a lot of piglets at the moment. What are piglets? I need a sponsor. My sponsees are piglets. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. You want me to help you get sober? Well, I saw you speak, and uh, I really like what you had to say about the two pairs of pants and the one with shit. So, John, I know, I just, and I don't know if you're serious. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, I call him Chucky. What? I don't know, John Callahan. I I'm
1: serious. I am serious. You know, sometimes I just I make jokes because I get nervous but I'm, I, I, need, I need something.
2: You know, every day, like clockwork, at 4 p.m., I get massively depressed. Well, I'm depressed from the moment I wake up, so got you there. <laughs> Listen, we're having a group talk, my place on Saturday. Why don't you drop by? Ooh talk like. we'll talk about Chucky the other piglets are coming by at one o'clock 4014 Northwest
0: Johnson don't be late. so Gus <laughs> Van a real great filmmaker man He he's uh he's like Soderbergh in a way like Steven Soderbergh where he does a lot of different experimental kind of stuff uh, some of it works some of it doesn't but uh, then he just like knocks out of the park and does something really great like this man um, also with Soderbergh in a way he did a lot of films with the first time actors man you know you ever see Elephant from 2003 that's a real great film man uh, I did Paranoid Park like that film a lot. Uh, I didn't see Last Days, man. Who's with that? Uh, was that Michael Pitt in that film? And doesn't matter. Either way, man. Don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Uh, this is another streaming exclusive film. This was an Amazon film, and uh, this was based on a true story, man. You got this guy, John Callahan, played by uh, Joaquin Phoenix, who's um, kind of going back and forth in his life. He's uh, he's paralyzed, man. He's in a wheelchair, uh, can't move. He was, uh, and he's looking back on what led to that. Uh, he was, you know. A Real alcoholic. He was just going out and drinking a bunch, just, you know, not doing a whole lot with his life. Um, and then eventually one night after getting uh, in a bad accident uh, caused by uh, somebody who wasn't even even really that familiar with this guy Dexter played by Jack Black who uh, in my opinion is is very good in the film but is not utilized enough Um, he uh, starts to reflect on his life through um, anger and forgiveness and coming to terms with his own kind of inner demons as well as um, using his hands to make these uh, very uh, um, un-PC controversial Kind of uh, drawings and cartoons. Think of like Robert Crum in a Way. These sort of things, sort of like very, you know, uh, un PC, but also very um, like darkly humorous kind of stuff. And and I mentioned Jonah Hill before because I think this was the film that uh, really kind of showed me how amazing of an actor he was. And and I mean, he's he's fantastic in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. Don't get me wrong about that. But here, it's something about his performance where he has such a, um, a tenderness and a generosity, but but feels very real he's playing a hippie kind of character who runs this uh, support group with people who have different kind of uh, 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 illnesses or or sicknesses plus we got Udo Kier Kier in the film oh my gosh when he showed up I was like that's that's just great man it's uh, never a bad time when Udo Kier shows up the film is a uh, very nonlinear in a way where we jump back and forth a lot of times. And uh, I remember when this initially came out, I think I read something where some people were a little confused on exactly the uh, timeline of a lot of events in the film. And I don't think it's that hard to, Put the pieces together i mean it's, it's pretty easy to see kind of the development of this character um in a way where i i feel like a big uh plus of the film is uh, Phoenix's performance who uh you know in the past six seven years has been on a streak of these uh really excellent films and these really excellent roles um the 28 one of the 2018 films that i didn't um re but um the other film being uh, the Sisters Brothers with um, John C Reilly, uh, Riz Ahmed, and Jake Gyllenhaal, which is also a very good film as well. I, I uh, just didn't get an opportunity to rewatch it, but I do like that film quite a bit. But um, he's a character actor now, where um, it, it's he's you you, you see him. Uh, choose a role for a film, and you know it's usually gonna be a pretty solid one. I mean, I look at some of his recent work in the past ten years. He's done movies like uh, Her or The Master or Joker, and you know, all I think those are all great films. And uh, even recently, you know, Come On, Come On, which I liked a lot. Uh, he's just a he's just a really phenomenal character actor, and he brings a lot of vulnerability here, man, because you just totally see the uh the, the rise and fall and rise in a away as somebody who's just used to this normal lifestyle. This self-deprecating, getting getting day drunk lifestyle, and uh, having to realize that he uh, ex- while he's not uh, uh, physically at fault in the situation, he is uh, he, there's just a he's at fault where he could have prevented the situation in a way. Um, what I think probably my favorite sequence in the film is towards the end, um, at least in the third act, there's a long sequence between Donnie and John, Wykeen Phoenix and Jonah Hill, and um, it, it's a long, it's, it's primarily a lot of dialogue from Jonah Hill where Wykeen uh, Phoenix asks him a question, and it's this really great exchange between the two of them that I think is one of the big highlights of the film. Uh, I'm not really familiar with the work of John Callahan. I know this is based off a book of his. I also forgot to mention Rooney Mara in the film plays Anu, who's uh. I think she's uh, supposed to be Swedish in the film or something like that. But the the uh, the way the film is shot, it does a very good job. And you know, and I like Rooney Mara. I, I've I've never uh, been like a huge fan of her in films, but I've always thought she was a good actor. But what I like about her performance here and the way that she's directed is, directed is that um, she seems very uh, angelic in a way. Where uh, there's the when they first meet, John is at the lowest of the low. He's in the worst possible situation, and um, she seems like the total contrast of that she's a very gentle sweet character uh, in a way where you could totally see uh why someone would easily fall for her you know she's just I mean on top of on top of being beautiful it's just the way that she uh, handles herself she has a soft-spoken voice that um the way it's directed puts her on like I said like an angelic kind of uh like this light behind her uh kind of level you know the film is very funny as well. I mean, it is it is a uh, comedy, but I mean more so a drama. But it is a comedy. There are uh, plenty of great interactions with the film. Jonah Hill has a lot of really great moments. And um, speaking of comedy, um, Jack Black plays the film straight, but he's very good in the film as well. Um, I uh, what I was saying before is that I do. Th- do wish that he was uh, used a bit more because, um, if I did have an issue with the film, I, I think that we, uh, we're away from that character for a long time for most of the film, and then when we eventually come back to him, there, there's a lot that I, I, I wish I, we could have seen more of where he was coming from in the fallout of this uh, of the event that happened. Um, but that's only a minor uh, uh, detriment to the film because I think Jack Black, who you know is a fine comedic actor, but I think really when he shines, where he shines is in a lot of um, either dramatic roles or uh, uh, kind of... middling humorous roles like this like Bernie I think is a is a really great performance and a great film uh, I really like Jack Black in the D train um, but, but then again you know, I love School of Rock and you know a lot of his big films and uh, but yeah it, it's just the ha- it's just how uh, Van Sant directs a lot of his actors he's, he's great at directing actors man like I was saying before is that even in his films um, with first-time actors like Elephant or uh, Paranoid Park he's able to hand he's able to direct them in a way where uh, in mean, those films specifically even if not every character or every actor I should say, is, is phenomenal or is amazing. The the, the They're all able to match the specific um, feeling of the film, which is what I think this does as well. Also, speaking of Jonah Hill, one thing I wanted to mention before is that the um, actor from mid-90s, who I'm going to pull up right here uh, that I mentioned previously – he has a cameo in the film. I assume this is probably filming around the same time or so. Uh, Sonny Soljic, there's a, a sequence in the film where I forgot he was actually in this as well briefly, but when he popped up, it was a nice kind of, um, a nice kind of cameo but uh yeah either way like i said this is one that is uh it's only available on amazon unfortunately i you know this really does need a blu-ray because i think this is one of van sansa's strongest films in his already incredible filmography he's a guy who i've just uh really enjoyed or loved most of his films whether it be drugstore cowboy or my own private idaho or elephant you know he's just a guy who and i haven't seen all of this stuff i'm not gonna act like i mean i know he's got like i know a couple of his films aren't too well received and i'm not too crazy about the psycho remake and all that but he really is a really interesting artist now. and I'm looking forward to whatever he does next. So, uh, yeah, number, uh, what was that, number five? Yeah, man, at number five, or nope, it's number four, not number five, who am I talking about? Uh, Don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Speaking of a director who's had a long and interesting career, let's talk about Paul Schrader, and let's talk about at number three, First Reformed. Did you see the doctor? Yes, I made an appointment. There was a bit of a
1: hang-up with the insurance company, but, God, they make it so difficult.
2: Yeah, well, that's what
1: they do. Mm
2: -hmm. You need someone to take care of you.
1: Esther, We tried that. I'm not made for that.
2: (laughs) For what? Love? You're not made for love?
1: My marriage was a failure.
2: No marriage can survive the loss of a child. Isn't that right? Is that what you think? That what we did together was a sin that we transgressed?
1: No, that's not what I think. I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. It's just... Okay. Okay. I understand. I
2: I care about you. I want you to be happy.
0: I am happy. So, first reformed man, this is as well my third time viewing this as well. And, uh, like the other side of the wind, each time has gone up and up and up. Uh, I mean, the number, I mean, th- this film and the next two are all three that I gave a five out of five. And I think, you know, I've mentioned before, I think uh, star ratings or number ratings are, are not a great way to. Um, Project to to show a film's quality because uh, the next three films or this film or the next two films I think are all phenomenal in their own uh, uh, unique way but I just want to kind of put that out there as the the basis of how strong I think this film is but it's a film that even on this rewatch it, it was just so fresh with me um this is just everybody at their uh, at, at their top game man you have Paul Schrader who uh he's one of the, he's a director man and as well as I mean a writer a, a most famous writer, a writer of Taxi Driver but um or the writer of Taxi Driver I should say about a director who is always doing uh, really cool stuff, even if it's not always great stuff. You know, even some of his films like... um like Patty Hearst or um, the Comfort of Strangers, two films I like. Uh, you know, I like Patty Hearst more, but two films I like a lot. I don't, uh, I don't love either of those films, but they're very interesting films as well. And even recently, we had the Card Counter, um, which I thought was okay. You know, I thought it was yeah, it was decent, and uh, I didn't even know we had a new film out this year, a uh, uh, Master Gardener. I had no idea this existed, man. Well, I'm gonna have to keep an eye out for this. But yeah, so Paul Schrader, who's constantly making films, you look at his filmography and all the way back from '78 with the. Uh, Probably my favorite film of his, Blue Collar, uh, all the way up until Contemporary. It's just a guy who is... Uh, I, and I haven't seen his super recent films, I should also say. I, I did see Dog Eat Dog and Dying of the Light, but I haven't seen The Canyons. I haven't seen Adam Resurrected or The Walk or any of those. Um, so I, 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 I'm talking more so about a guy who's been around for a while and is, and is uh, always doing just cool stuff. And this is... Just, I mean... Uh, uh, like I was saying with Lars von Trier and and uh, Gus Van Sand, this this is this was this is one of the best films of his career. Um, it's a very smart film. It's a very quiet film uh, with Zadbeck's led by a bunch of great performances. I mean, Ethan Hawke is an actor I already like a lot, but the way that he plays it is very quiet, very contemplative. Um, I remember when this film came out, man. Um, it was around the same time as You Were Never Really Here, uh, which is a film I like, a, I mean, which is a film I actually love, but that's a 2019 film, so that's why it hasn't come up. Uh, but um, when people were talking about that, you know, I mean, there was that blurb that was like, this generation's taxi driver, this and that. And that doesn't really apply to that film. That's, that's a pretty uh, poor uh, quote to choose on that film, because if anything, this film feels more like it about this character, like Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, who is keeping a journal, and we are seeing his. Uh, this the text would have more of his, more of his uh, uh, psychological uh, and mental breakdown his downfall whereas Ethan Hawke has that in him but it's a different kind of uh, performance in him um, where we have his relationship with uh, this character Mary played by Amanda Seyfried um, who comes to him because her um Boyfriend, or I'm sorry, her husband is having these really uh, awful thoughts, and, and is 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 uh, is dep- very depressed about the uh, about the world and about the climate, and how the world is dying. So um, this kind of uh, this situation, I should also say, Ethan Hawke is a uh, 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 Ernest uh, or is it Ernst? Yeah, Ernest, whatever. Um, taller, and uh, we learn more about his backstory, the people around him in his life, and. Um, really what has led him to uh, have a question of faith in a way that uh, the Schrader script and directing is so smart because it's, uh, it's it, it, when it comes to topics of religion or anything of that sucks where it's very easy for a poor screenwriter to make the very obvious message or make very obvious messages I should say where they're saying some sort of um, some uh, denouncement against religion it's a very uh, easy way uh, for for a message like that where somebody has this sort of uh, vendetta against a topic like that. It's very easy for them to make a very sloppy and obvious script to appeal to the general masses. But what this film does is that it's not exactly a denouncement. It's more so about this character who, um, when we learn more about where he's coming from, which isn't even very late in the film, it's actually very early on, we get an idea where he's coming from and why he joined the priesthood um, and sort of his uh, conflicts in and of himself more so than anything else. And that question of faith of... Uh, letting the planet kind of turn into this uh, uh, thing. And the way the film runs as a whole is something that uh, should be pointed out. It's it's got a very specific feeling to it, the way that uh, Paul Schrader uh, writes and directs it and uh, edits edits it as well. Actually, I'm not sure who the editor was on this film. Uh, I'll take a look at that. But uh, the majority of the film, man, almost every shot in the film is... uh, is on a tripod, and I should also say that the editor on this film was just right here. This is this is not my time. Uh, quite a few editors in this film. Okay, never mind. Anyway, so um, essentially, okay. But the the main first assistant editor we have Max Berger, Avalon Hall, Gina Kalim. There's a lot of names here. Am I gonna run all through these? Nah. You got what I'm talking about. Anyways, my point is is that. It's the, the way that it it's got a certain feeling to the to the to the way it's all done. Where a lot of the dialogue is very matter of fact. Um, a lot of the shots are on a tripod. Um, there, there's not a whole lot of uh, music in the film as well. I don't know if there's I, actually, but besides one sequence that does um, break these rules or not even rules per se, but there's one sequence that uh, I don't think I'm still. A, 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 entirely on visually, but it's a, it's a good breakout from the rest of the film as well as having some uh, beautiful looking shots in the film, whether it be the bleakness inside a diner or um, uh, one of the great shots at the towards the end of the film, you have the purple sky with the uh, camera kind of uh, uh, panning forward uh, towards Ethan Hawke. It's all beautiful looking and uh, the film takes its time as well to really uh, allow yourself to get involved with Ethan Hawke's character in the film, even a sequence early on which uh, would be a throwaway in many other films that wouldn't make it to the final cut, but I think adds to the overall kind of feeling uh, of what, of where Ethan Hawke is kind of almost trapped in this church in a way as you have like just a scene where he's giving a tour and he's just talking about mundane things like uh, one of the shirts being out of stock or the price of a hat. Um, uh, Somebody tells a joke and he doesn't really react to it. You know, it kind of feels like, I mean, Paul Schrader is, I mean, is, is really great at these kind of lonely, uh, uh, really kind of working class sort of people, whether it be in Taxi Driver being the big one, or um, like, you know, he wrote Raging Bull as well, uh, or even something uh, like The Last Temptation of Christ, where you have, um, you know, Jesus in the film, who feels very isolated and feels very contemplative. Um, as well, I also want to mention that Amanda Seyfried, I think, is really stand out in the film. She has a very quiet, very somber performance. And she's an actor who I've seen in quite a few films and has never really, um, never really been... Uh, something that I took away from, uh, not as a negative. She's just never been an actor who I've uh, particularly, she's not a draw for me, but here the way uh, that she plays it is very subdued and very melancholic, but in a very honest way, as well as Cedric the Entertainer, who has a very small part as well. But when he shows up in the film, he, he feels very honest. He feels like a real person. Um, I also got to mention as well, who is uh, as, uh, an equal whenever she's on screen is Victoria Hill playing Esther, who has a uh, background of Ethan Hawke's character, uh, really great in the film as well. Well, she only has a handful of scenes, but but she again feels very real. Everybody in the film feels very real, and um, I mean there is the the uh, the, the comparison to in- uh, Ingmar Bergman's uh, Winter Light, which the film is a partial remake of, partial remake only exactly in the uh, well, I don't want to say anything in case you've seen that film and haven't seen First performed, but essentially it's, it's not exactly a remake. It, it more or less remakes certain moments and ideas in that film. Uh, but Winter Light as well is also a terrific film that should be seen. But um, one of Paul Schrader's best films uh, and where it goes to in the third act is very interesting and the, the ending as well is something that I, I've always thought a lot about. I, I initially didn't know exactly how to interpret uh, where the film goes to, but after this last viewing, I think I have a, a good idea of, not exactly interpretation in, in terms of ambiguity, but more so about certain choices along the way, uh, without getting into too many, too many details, but this is just a really, this is a brilliant, quiet film, and one of Schrader's best, uh, one of Ethan Hawke's best, um, the framing, the editing, the writing, the acting, it's all top notch here, this is somebody who is a, is a master of his craft and um, has just proven this again and even, you know, even when I said before I wasn't as crazy about the card counter, I thought it was okay there are moments in that film in the way that as well, you have a lonely character in that who's narrating the film, and there's there are moments in that film that I think are genius, I think uh, uh, Schrader hasn't, hasn't lost it. It's just that I don't think the whole film works, but this film definitely does and has to be seen, man. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's just a phenomenal film, so that is, um, that is first reformed. All right, man, so number two and number one are two films I kind of wrestled with internally with uh, what I wanted to give number one as. And ultimately, I don't know if I reached an entirely conclusive uh, conclusion or definitive conclusion, I should say, because with number two and number one, I mean, even First Reform could have been number one. It was honestly not that far off from being uh, uh, there. But uh, number two and number one are they shouldn't be compared because I think they're both – they're both genius in their, in their own way. Um, they're both different kinds of films. And ultimately, I don't know if I like one more than the other, kind of the same way I was with um, the 1998 episode. Although, I, in, in retrospect, I do still feel confident in my number one choice for that. So here, it could go back and forth. Um, these were both rewatches and elicited... Um, just just really powerful reactions um from in my opinion one of the most interesting and uh, best science fiction horror filmmakers working right now alex garland And number two is annihilation we
1: have to go back we have to go back now she's right I, I really don't know how much more right she has to be okay and i agree with you we should go back good okay great there we go okay so the three of us can just hold pack on a up minute our- hold on We should go back, yes, but it took us, what, six days to get here? And the coast is two days away. You're saying that we get out by going deeper in? Yeah, if you like, yeah. Like? No, I don't like. This isn't some tactic to get us to the lighthouse, is it? I believe that the coast is the best route out.
0: Okay? This was one that, uh, the uh, the release of this film was totally boxed, man, and this was one that it's it's kind of surprising this film even got made at all because we it's it's hard these days to come by films like this science fiction for adults that doesn't have to be. Um, Uh, that doesn't need to appeal to a a mass general audience this got a theatrical um uh release in 2018 but apparently i mean from hearsay uh paramount was unsure how to go about the film saying it was too intellectual for um mainstream audiences and as a result of that um i think just got dumped on netflix in the uk and kind of i don't think did as well as they had wanted it to so it's kind of a miracle that this film even got made as is alex garland writing off the success of x Machina which is a film that I like a lot um, it's a film I've liked a lot in in retrospect because I, when I initially saw it I had uh, lukewarm feelings on it but since then especially seeing his uh, follow up films this and his recent one Men which I liked a lot um it made me appreciate that one even more. And apparently he said he only has one more film in him, which is a shame, but I mean, I quality over quantity, man, because this film, I think is just one of the, the strongest and smartest science fiction films of the 21st century. This is, this is definitely up there. Um, speaking of when I was talking about with, uh, first reformed Paul Schrader and, and Oscar Isaac in the card counter, we have Oscar Isaac here as well, uh, who, um, this is also a, at times a nonlinear film. We have Natalie Portman who plays Lana. Who, uh, or Lena, I apologize. And it's been, I think, about a year or so since her husband uh, went off. Uh, he was in the military and and never came back. And there was uh, they, there was no there was a speculation of of what happened to him, but there was never a real conclusion. And eventually, he just comes home one day. But right off the bat, he feels very cold, very distant, and robotic. And um, from there, we start to learn a bit more of what is what was going on with the situation, as well as uh, Natalie Portman and a group of scientists who are going into um, this 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 uh, kind of bubble in a way called the shimmer, uh, where, you know, time is is totally out the window. You can be in there what feels like for days, but you're actually in there for weeks. Um, the atoms are being split. You have animals that have different features to them. It's science run amok, and they have to get to this one point where a lighthouse is to kind of be able to stop it. And, uh, man, this film, this this seeing it theatrically was amazing. No doubt about that. But this last viewing uh, was, it was a viewing that could not be replicated again. Man, I just found myself... Um, my eyes were glued to the screen, man. I didn't even want to get up to go to the bathroom. And I knew the thing is, I knew what was going to happen. You know, you know how it plays out. But I think I had forgotten about certain, um, emotions and certain sequences in the film, um, and how just how brilliant they are, not just visually, but uh, the audio as well, um, which I'll talk about in a little bit, um, all of the players here, uh, they do a very good job. And Natalie Portman, I admittedly am not too big of a fan of, and, and, and in terms of an actor, I just uh, haven't really seen her in a whole lot. That's kind of blown me away. And and here, you know, she, it's not an amazing performance, but she does fit the role very well as a confused outsider, like the audiences um, going into this this place. And and I I, I do agree a bit with the um, a, a negative that I have heard about the film is that um, the film does start out with. The after, where where Natalie Portman is, is is talking to these other characters about her getting inside, so you know right off the bat that she gets out. Um, I do think that is a bit of a detriment to the film, and apparently that was Alex Garland's choosing, which feels like a studio note. Um, but that's a very minor point. I don't think it. I don't think it takes away from a lot of the tension in the film because the film ultimately, uh, you know, when you say it's a film that of everything Uh, you know you watch so many films you watch so many horror films or science fiction films there's not a lot that really gets under your skin And, and i can confidently say this film gets under my skin i think this is one of the creepiest films of recent memory uh not just with the big moments in the film which i'll talk about but even early on the way the film is directed when oscar isaac first comes back into the picture he um you just see him walking up the stairs, and and Natalie Portman asks him where he came from, and he he I forgot what he says. But he, was, he says he was right outside the door, and it's just, just the way he plays that. It's so cold and creepy, and, and it's just like oh man, it it's truly unnerving, man. And then when you get into the shimmer, it feels truly otherworldly, man. It doesn't feel like these characters are just or these actors are just on a set in the woods. It when you get to these um these big visuals of these animals with different cells in them, and um and certain and what what how they relate to certain characters in the film because as well there's um, certain metaphors going on for um, each of the character has each of the characters has had a loss in some sort of way and the first time I saw this film I think I was able to make the general surface level kind of observations from a lot of the visuals uh, the more um, uh, the more over the top um, big spectacle kind of visuals but on the second viewing here. Being able to get more out of it with certain relationships with characters, when characters enter, when characters leave the film, and how that environment kind of uh, mirrors it in a way, including one moment in the film that I just thought—I mean, I, well, I'll talk about a, a big moment in the film—but there's one moment where um, it's one of the characters, uh, is—they uh, go to walk away from something. And the way the camera follows them, and I don't want to, I don't want to tell the whole scene, but it's it's so creepy, man. But it's like beautiful in the same way. I don't know what it is about this film, man. This film really just gets under my skin in the best possible way. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you want to call this a straight up horror film or not. I look at it, look at this as just more of a science fiction drama. Um, but this is definitely horrific, man. It has, I mean, there's a sequence um, which I, I mean, might might be a minor. Uh, not even a detriment, but there there was one moment in the film where, um, because what you know what what's going on in the Shimmer mirrors a lot of events with these characters. There's one moment where they go to a location, and I don't know, and and it's a, a location a character is familiar with, and I don't know if that character is aware of it at the at the time because they don't address it, and the movie doesn't make a big deal of it. But I thought it was a little peculiar. But that sequence, um, in the middle of the film, which the the events in that scene that sequence are, are are so unnerving and so creepy and and it's the the one moment that a lot of people come back to and um when i i think when i initially first saw it i it was disturbing and 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 it was insane but seeing it again um my gosh man i just it was just creepy as hell man but it works in such a it works in such a good way that it really just like you feel for these characters when when this this thing is near them i don't want to give it away in case you haven't seen it but it it works so well and um the the real big highlight of the film for me in in terms of what totally worked and god bless paramount man for letting alex garland go as far as he did but i would say the final 20 minutes of the film um it goes into some really wild visual places and I just could not take my eyes off the screen man and I also want to mention the score for the film as well there's a musical sting they use in the third act that is so just like makes the hairs on your arm stand especially with the visuals accompanying it (laughs) There's just some stuff in that third act, man, um, where a character discovers something and watches something, and man, I can't put it, I can't tell you enough, it just got under my skin, man, no pun intended for the middle of this film, if you've seen the film of course, also a great sequence as well just, I mean, the movie could easily have just ridden on its visuals, which would have been fine as is if just going into this otherworldly kind of place, we have these weird um, these these people who are dying and the plants are coming out of them, or these weird creatures that are are, uh, are scientifically impossible, but the film has so much more going on with the uh, characters, and with the uh, events inside mirroring their lives and man if this is just like when you, uh, the way i watch this film i'm like well i'm watching an artist at work man i'm watching a true genius make something that i can't say that i've really seen a whole lot of before at least done this well and done to this scale and i just think that you know um i know that uh, you know he, he, uh, his his follow-up men uh, and I think kind of had some mixed reactions on but I think, and uh, even though I, I think that's a really great film as well um, that's a film that I think the the visuals are a little more surface level in that of what it's trying to do and while the third act of that film does go off the rails and is is definitely visually unique I do think that this is a bit more interesting but the fact of the matter is I, I think that's a great film as well um, that Alex Garland is, is using these sci-fi ideas, uh, these otherworldly kind of visuals and, and is able to um, complement them well with a really good script with it and if he makes one more film like he says man then I'll be their opening night man because I think that he's truly one of the most interesting directors and writers working, and, and this film is just, I think is, is a, a, give me a couple more years, man, I might even go as far as to call it a masterpiece, man, because this film has just stuck with me like few other uh, films of recent memory have, it's just a truly masterful, masterful film, and one that we really don't get often, and the, the fact that it exists at all is kind of a miracle, so at number two, nearly a number one, I mean, it could be number one, it's, it's all subjective, and it's all, um, you know, just numerical, So it doesn't really hold any real value above it. But this is uh, a true masterclass in filmmaking and and just one of the best films of not only 2018, but of uh, recent memories. This is is a total uh, phenomenal film. All right, man. So at number one, a film that I was worried that I I didn't know if it was going to hold up or not, because when I initially saw this film theatrically, I had such a strong reaction to it. And um, it can be difficult to revisit certain films you have such a unique experience with in terms of not just the setting of the film, which wasn't anything um, to to write home about, as they say, but more so the kind of emotions that evoke from your viewing, especially if you know the outcome of certain events in the film. But I can happily say this film has definitely held up and... um, it it could be I mean like annihilation. It, both of them, it's, it's it's really hard to kind of pick one over the other. So this is entirely, uh, uh, entirely just one number over another but I can't stress enough this film Annihilation being just two uh, masterful films from one of my favorite filmmakers working as well it seems to be a real theme as, as, seems to be a real theme here for this episode but uh, either way from the great great Chloe Zhao at number one uh, this is The Rider
2: I'm selling Gus Brady
0: I can't sell Gus
2: it's not like you can ride anymore ride through the pain Is that right Brady you ain't going to be turning out horses left and right just because your head hurts a little bit now, are you? You seen Lane? Remember when he went three for three in Cool Junction
1: and won it? That
2: was a good night for Lane. Sometimes dreams aren't meant to be. It's too bad your mom ain't here. You and her could be stubborn together. Any animal around here got hurt like I did, they have to be put down.
0: So yeah, man, this is uh, this is as well like First Reformed is a very quiet film. Uh, unlike First Reformed, this is uh, almost primarily handheld, man. I don't think there's really any uh, tripod shots to it. We have a we have, um, uh, first-time actor, uh, Brady Jan- uh, Jandro, is that how you say his name? Who uh, plays the character Brady as well. This film, I believe, is semi-autobiographical. Semi-auto- the, the, the majority of this film is all first-time actors, man. Um, but the... Basically, we, we follow him, and he is someone who's living in. I've got to where exactly he lives at. It's uh, somewhere in the south, but um, he was somebody who is in the small town, and uh, horse riding and bull riding is, is is a religion down there. Where it's sort of like you know you fall and you, you get back up. What's that song. I fall, back I don't know how the song goes. Anyway, but he uh, we see the aftermath of a horrible head injury he has, and it's he's at a point in his life where this is all he knows man this is his dream this is what he is meant to do and when that is taken away from you when you have a possibility a strong possibility that this will not ever be able to happen again it's like a it's like a reader who becomes blind or a musician who becomes deaf you know you guys see sound of metal from a couple years ago that was a great film too but this as this film is very quiet and very contemplative as well. Like I was talking about, first reformed of this character Brady, who has to go about in his life where he has his father, who uh, doesn't have a whole lot of money, but is going out to the bar and is gambling and drinking. He has his uh, mentally deficient sister, who he has to take care of, and and he has his friends. But then he also is see he, he sees this guy Lane, who had this horrible accident and and uh, and has this just I mean he's paralyzed, man. He's just got permanent brain damage. Um, as well as still trying to find some way to keep this lifestyle going he's he's in denial he wants to keep go he wants to go back and and ride the horses man and ride the bulls but he has that slow realization there are many great sequences in the film where he has these he has to kind of uh, give these things up. He, there's a great sequence where he goes to a pawn shop, and he has his saddle. He has all these things that mean that mean to him, not just on a superficial, physical. This is a this is an item that means a lot to me, but more so in what they represent. Of giving up this saddle is giving up this part of him, man, and his in his not wanting to accept the reality of it. But at the same time, Chloe Zhao is such a great filmmaker that she didn't. She never rides in cliche, man. The the a lot of the film, it's got an interesting combination combination because when I talk about first time actors, man, the act, you could criticize the acting in this film. Some actors are better than others, but I think they all fit with the same, with a certain tone of the film. I think Brady is actually a very good actor. Um, and, and even some of his uh, counterparts who aren't as strong, they fit the overall feeling. Um, so you have those scripted moments that feel scripted, not in a negative way, but more so in an acting way where they, it does stand out. But then you have a lot of moments where it feels like a fly on the wall. We see Brady in his day to day life, uh, trying to overcome boredom he's working a dull job but he has these kind of aspirations aspirations i should say and he wants to kind of feel like he belongs somewhere now that he can't and people around him are saying just get back up you can do it but realizing that i mean you i mean he looks at lane man and he sees that this could be him next man he he's got a he looks at lane as sort of just like uh this what he could easily turn into if he doesn't uh kind of find a way to cope with this and there's another storyline going on in the the film about this horse that he is trying to uh, tame as well, which is another part of the film, but it just complements um, the first half. But I think uh, the films like this, these kind of character films where you have these people, uh, I also love the setting as well. Again, I don't know exactly where it takes place, but I, I mean, I love these kind of films where it's just in the south, uh, in these kind of isolated areas, these small town kind of people. You guys see Montana Story Man? Uh, if you haven't seen that, man, I'll talk about that some other time at the end of the year. I've actually talked about that quite a few times on the show, but in case you're new to the show. That's another film that I highly recommend. That gives me the same sort of reaction. And ironically, actually, it's probably my favorite film of the year so far this year. But I just love the quieter moments with him, and uh, him feeling kind of lost in a way where he's starting to um, not exactly know what to do with himself. He, he knows he's getting worse. He's getting these terrible seizures. He's getting this these like the, the nerves in his arm tighten up. Man, there's a there's a really powerful moment where he can't get off a horse, but he doesn't want to admit it to himself. And it's just you just feel for him and you feel the struggle that he's going through because this lifelong passion being taken away from him because it just went too far, man. Or, or just it was it was not even went too far. I apologize. But it's just a bad accident, and it's such a—it's just such a beautiful film, man. Because the atmo- the uh, the atmosphere as well, the exteriors, the open landscapes, the cars driving—it's it, just the supermarket. The, you have—it's it's all just so peaceful and quiet and, and tragic, and the open American landscape. This is truly a, uh, an American film, not just because of the whole cowboy aspect, but because of just the location as well. It feels so American, and feels so—you know—you you gotta follow your dreams, but at what point do you say? that you can't do it anymore. Um, and there's one shot in the film, man, where the first time I saw it, I I mean, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks, man. And it, and it's a shot that normally, you know, they don't even make a big thing of. It happens at the very end of this film where um, Brady looks over and he looks over at two characters and their reactions and then his reaction, the way the film is cut, man, it was it, above all else, that was the moment that stuck with me in this film. Uh, Chloe Zhao has proven herself to be one of the most interesting filmmakers working. Um, I still haven't seen Songs My Brother Taught Me, which is one that I don't, that I keep neglecting to watch. But I mean, seeing Nomadland as well, I got a lot of the same reactions from that film, and I think that was a a, a beautiful film as well with a great lead performance by uh, Frances McDormand, as well as with the writer feeling very fly in the wall, feeling very um. That one feels at, at times more unscripted because that even though that film as well has a, has a lot of uh, first time actors and that and um, you know I know she did Eternals for Marvel and you know that's cool and all. I got to make money but I, I hope that that doesn't uh, deter her away from these more personal kind of films that uh, uh, I just hope that you know that was just a, a, a film they made for, she made for them so she can get more recognition because when Nomadland won Best Picture man I, I don't give a, I don't give a damn about the Oscars man it's all you know it is what it is but the fact is that she's you know when when I look at my favorite filmmakers working I mean, she's definitely up there, man. And i have only seen two of her films out of the four features that she's made, and it's just—I mean, I, I feel so strongly about *The Rider* and *Nomadland* that for her to already be one of my favorites is something else. I think this is truly just one of the most beautiful films of recent memory. I mean, when I talk about *Annihilation*, of just having this powerful kind of feeling to it, I get—I get a similar kind of feeling here, not in the same reaction as *Annihilation*, but that sort of visual storytelling that that cinema does, man. It's just, this is a beautiful film and um, one that. Even on a rewatch, I just just never got out of my head, man. I love this film. I love Chloe's I Love the cast. Everything. This is uh, my favorite film of of 2018. I mean, probably my favorite film. This or Annihilation. I don't really know either or. I'm not gonna pick one over the other. But for numerical sake, this is number one. So at number one is uh, mm-hmm. Chloe's as the writer. So we've reached the end of the list, and uh, I'm gonna go through and do a quick rundown of all 100 films. That I watched for 2018. I'm just gonna go through them. I'm not gonna talk about any of them. I'm just gonna go one by one. And if you hear a film that you like that's low, or you think it's too low, or you think it's too high, it's all subjective, man. It's it's. I think 2018 was a really phenomenal year. Uh, and I just I, I'm looking at this list right now. Just, I mean, there's a lot of really really great films on here. And I think the next cozy core. I'm gonna highlight some films that uh, didn't make the list but are worth watching. So. Let's run down it really quick. So at number 100, uh, my least favorite film that I watched was Madeline's Madeline. Uh, Number 99 was Colette. 98 was Mrs. Hyde. 97 was Vox Lux. 96 was Hale County This Morning, This Evening. 95 was The the Heiresses. 94 was If Beale Street Could Talk. At number 93 is Liz and the Bluebird. 92 is Kodachrome. Uh, 91 is Hereditary. 90 is 24 Frames. At 89 is Wobble Palace. 88 is Mila. 87 is Paterno. 86 is Come Sunday, at 85, McQueen, at 84, Who We Are Now, at 83, Six Balloons, at 82, Disobedience, at 81, Five Fingers for Marcellus, or Mar- how do you say that? Mar- yeah, at uh, number 80 is Love After Love, at number 79 is I Think We're Alone Now, at number 78 is Boy Erased, at number 77 is Hearts Beat Loud, at number 76 is Heavy Trip, at number 75 is Blind Spotting. At number 74 is Crazy Rich Asians. At number 73 is Blockers. At number 72 is Happy as Lazaro. At number 71 is Never Look Away. At number 70 is Long Days Journey Into Night. At number 69 is Cold War. At number 68 is The Image Book, R.I.P. Gadar. At number 67 is The Debt Collector. At number 66 is Ash is Purest White. At number 65 is A Fathers and Sons. At number 64 is Dark River. At number 63 is Mary, Mary Goes Round. At number 62 is Sweet Country. At number 61 is Paper Year. And at 60 is Capernaum. At 59 is Journey's End. At 58 is Amanda. At number 57 is Chappaquiddick. At number 56 is Black 47. At 55 is The Wolf House. At fifty-four is shadow. At fifty-three is destroyer. Fifty-two is widows. At fifty-one is custody. And at fifty is Asako one and two. At forty-nine is golden exits. At forty-eight is an elephant stand sitting still. At number forty-seven is den of thieves. At number forty-six is the land of steady habits. At forty-five is tombbed. At number 44 is And Then I Go. At number 43 is Small Town Crime. At number 42 is Three Identical Strangers. And at 41 is Thoroughbreds. At 40, uh, The Kindergarten Teacher. 39, Border. 38, Roma. 37, John McEnroe, uh, In the Realm of Perfection. At number 36 is Support the Girls. 35 is In the Isles. 34 is The Old Man and the Gun." 33 is American Animals. 32 is Minding the Gap. And 31 is Private Life. At number 30 is Caliber. 29 is Free Solo. and number 28 is Burning. At number 27 is We the Animals. At number 26 is Mission Impossible Fallout. At number 25 is A Prayer Before Dawn. At number 24 is At Eternity's Gate. At number 23 is Stan and Ollie. At number 22 is Shoplifters. And at number 21 is Beautiful Boy. At number 20 is The Captain. At number 19 is The Favorite. At at number 18 is Sorry to Bother You. At number 17 is On My Skin. At number 16 is Green Book. At number 15 is Overlord. At number 14 is Juliet Naked. At number 13 is The Night Comes For Us. At number 12 is They'll Love Me When I'm Dead and at number 11 is Filmworker, and the top 10, once more, at number 10 is They Shall Not Grow Old, at number 9 is Leave No Trace, at number 8 is The House That Jack Built, at number 7 is Mid-90s, at number 6 is Thunder Road, at number 5 is The Other Side of the Wind, at number 4 is Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot, at number 3 is First Reformed, at number 2 is Annihilation, and at number 1 is The Rider. All right, man, and here's the exciting part. The randomized year from 1930 to 2021 of what will be the next top 10 video to come out in March 2023. And remember that 1956, 1958, 1998, and 2018 have been removed. So, can I get a drum roll, please? Thank you. So, the next top 10 list year will be 2021 geez louise man i'm not <laughs> gonna be doing a lot of rewatches all right man well come back in uh, t- in uh march we're gonna do the top 10 favorite films of 2021 all right guys thank you thank you so much for listening again new cozy corner of cinema will be coming on friday like always and that's all i got man so all the best and cut perfect printed. let's move on